0: Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Tuesday, the 16th of June, 2020, and we're back with episode 156. And we've got another great guest today. This time it's Dmitry Shevlenko, the founder and president of Tortoise, an autonomous e-mobility startup in Silicon Valley. Uh, And when I say autonomous e-mobility startup, what I mean is autonomous e-scooter startup. Yeah, they've actually developed Kit, which enables Not strictly speaking, autonomous uh, e-scooters, but to be precise, the remote or teleoperation of these e-scooters. The idea being that when you try to get a scooter to go for a ride, for instance, think of your Lime or Bird scooters. um, Instead of having to locate them and then walk to them, you can press a button and, of course, these things will then, well, scoot on over to you. And similarly, when you park your scooter at the end of the ride... Well, these will then scoot off to a designated parking spot to help kind of alleviate the big problem around the world of these things just kind of ending up as little more than sidewalk litter. But uh, anyway, we'll dive into all this and much more in just a little bit. Before getting started, though, just a friendly reminder, if you're a fan of this podcast, please don't forget to follow me uh, on all, well, on whatever is your favorite podcast platform, but especially Apple Podcasts. Please do drop me five stars there if you're a fan and preferably a written review. Uh, If you haven't yet taken our international survey on consumer acceptance of autonomous car tech generally, please do be sure to head on over to hogandco.com. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. Click the blue banner at the top and take the survey. Um, Finally, one other thing really worth mentioning, um, I know I've shared in the past that my wife and I did place an order for our Tesla Model Y. And I'm pretty thrilled to announce that we finally just got news that we've got our VIN. Yeah, the actual vehicle is finally built. We placed this order back in February, specifically on Valentine's Day. So we are pretty thrilled indeed. And having called the Fremont Delivery Center, my understanding is that we should be able to take delivery of this thing in possibly the next couple of days, certainly within the week or so, uh, to pick it up somewhere in San Francisco. So we are Super excited, but the reason I'm telling you this is because, if you remember, about a year ago I had the chance to make a uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat ridiculous video of Tesla Model 3's autopilot system. So, needless to say, I am very excited to eventually go ahead and make a video of our new Model Y as soon as we've got it. If you're interested, don't forget to uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for, well, just a Autonomous Hogue, actually, that will get you there. The actual URL is, it's a bit of a mouthful. It's a bit long. It's youtube.com slash Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue. Yeah, but um, go ahead and give it a search. If you haven't yet seen last year's video, give it a watch. I think you'll get a kick out of it. It is pretty ridiculous, just to warn you. Uh, But yeah, if you subscribe, you'll be notified as soon as my new Model Y video goes live. I don't know when I'm going to do it. With any luck, I should have this thing published. Um, yeah, before the end of the month, possibly. We shall see. Right. Anyway, enough about that. Let's dive in and get started. Hope you're sitting comfortably. We've got about an hour once again, this time with Dmitry Shevolenko, the founder and president of Tortoise. All this right now. Two, one, and we're live, so Dimitri, awesome to chat finally how you doing
1: I'm doing fantastic. I well, thanks so great. much for joining me. yeah, this is great. I mean, in uh quarantine life, you know this is as good a social inter- interaction as you can get, so it's great to have the conversation
0: seriously, yeah, and hey, let's look at the bright side. What else are people going to do but listen to awesome podcasts. am I right? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's see here. Um, look, obviously, I read about you guys. Uh, well, you and I, I think, first connected, I I think, through LinkedIn somehow a while back, if I'm not mistaken. And then coincidentally, I read a bunch of cool articles about what you were up to, and I should say, in conjunction with some partner companies you're already working with. But as usual, I like to kind of start from the top, learn a bit about you kind of personally, your background, kind of how you ended up in this gig. Because frankly, I think I speak for all of us who've learned about Tortoise it's uh kind of hard not to picture a swarm or a herd or what is it a flock of scooters <laughs> flying about autonomously. I don't even know what you know what noun to use, so yeah how, how'd you get into this mess anyway
1: yeah so um so so I've been around Silicon Valley for a while uh w- was at Facebook out of college and was with the company as it went from eighty million users to eight hundred million users and so got got a taste of of what hyper growth. Uh, feels like, and have been addicted to it ever since, uh, joined Uber in 2014 uh, and helped lead the company's expansion into new mobility, which included the the jump bikes and scooters, things like Uber Transit, Uber car rentals. And, and one of the reasons I was very bullish about micromobility is I saw the internal data that more than 50% of rideshare trips are under two miles 60% of all private car trips are under three miles. And now that we're in an era where you can manufacture a light electric vehicle for 500 to a thousand bucks, uh, and it can be a faster, more enjoyable way to do those short trips, uh, it felt like an inevitable solution to urban congestion and really this real estate and geometry problem. as uh, we have more and more people moving into cities and cars take up a lot of space. And so how do you move, move this growing numbers of people through the same space? And one of the obvious answers is, is having smaller vehicles. And, and so after a great four-year run at Uber, I spent a stretch advising a bunch of different mobility companies, ranging from scooter operators to scooter manufacturers to, to companies like Remix that sell software to cities to help them manage all these new mobility modes. and. Through this these experiences, saw what was working well in shared micromobility, but also saw some of the big challenges. Um, you have a very unreliable rider experience. Nine times out of ten, when you want to find a scooter, you need to go on a wild goose chase to find it. Uh, you have an upside-down business model for the operators. They're all losing a lot of money. And then you have some gnarly public nuisance issues with scooter sidewalk clutter and obstruction. And long story short, I, during this period, met my now co-founder, David Graham, who was at the time building an autonomous lawnmower. And he realized that if you're that's awesome. working with a light electric vehicle that weighs under 200 pounds, and you don't need to move it faster than five miles per hour, and you can have a solution that's hybrid uh, autonomy, and then using a remote teleoperator, so a remote driver, uh, who's able to see out of the cameras on it. It only takes $100 in electronics uh, to take that light electric vehicle and make it capable of what we call remote or automated repositioning. And as exciting as the lawnmower space was, uh, we we quickly realized that you apply that same technology to a shared scooter and you can solve those three big challenges I addressed. So you can now have this on-demand experience for a rider where you can just press a button on your phone And instead of an Uber or Lyft showing up, a scooter shows up at your front door. Uh, You can get the right scooter to the right place at the right time, uh, significantly increasing the revenue per day per scooter. You can dramatically reduce the labor costs of recharging them. And you can repark a scooter immediately after a rider completes their trip. And so so we saw this really uh, unique opportunity to be an essential service for a very fast growing market. Uh, but what got us even more excited is realizing there's going to be a bunch of different new light electric vehicles, whether they be delivery robots, security robots, cleaning robots, they're all going to need this ability to get from A to B cost effectively. And uh, that, was, that was the origin of Tortoise. And you know, we, we first uh, conquered uh, solving this in, in the scooter space and launched our first deployments. And are uh, making a lot of great progress there, but with, with everything that's happened with COVID and this boom in e-commerce, we're also really excited about applying this technology to delivery and last mile logistics. And uh, yeah, we're, we're just getting started, but but very excited to uh, uh, be making uh, it possible to, to move things cost effectively across the city.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I mean, I would, but with respect to COVID, I would assume that this would actually be kind of an optimal time for, for what you guys are doing, right? Whether it's with respect to the scooters or as you just mentioned, branching out into the delivery space too, no? I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, generally, honest. yes. I, I would say, uh, and, I, and I'm the biggest cheerleader of all things mobility, but with, with COVID, you do have a freeze in the movement of people. And so the the overall TAM, if you will, of of moving people uh, has contracted a little bit, uh, but it it certainly uh, in terms of if you are running shared micromobility operations, it's even more important to make it profitable now than it was six months ago. Uh, it's even more important to be able to actually disinfect the vehicles throughout the day, and that's one of the things you can do if if you have this real time rebalancing ability is get them to a place where, where they can be cleaned more frequently. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think the other really exciting opportunity for, for anybody who's, who's bullish on the future of, of cities without cars dominating them is there's been something like 2500 miles of road space that's been reallocated from cars back to bike lanes and pedestrians. And that, that type of infrastructure shift would have otherwise taken five, maybe 10 years. Um so yeah, this is this is certainly uh, uh there's reasons to be optimistic, but but there's also fewer people making trips. Um and so that that's certainly you know, all the operators saw uh a, a significant decline in usage. But if you look at the data now out of China, Korea, Paris, bike share and scooter share utilization is the highest it's ever been. Now, unfortunately, some of that is coming from people being afraid to take public transit. And so public transit is still hurting a lot. Uh, And that's an
0: alarming thing though, right? Because the idea of so many people starting to go back to work, starting to commute and suddenly abandoning public transit, if they can, if they have their own cars, that's a pretty kind of scary idea too. I mean, if we thought traffic was bad before, it's going to be catastrophic now, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, even if if 5% of the people that that otherwise are taking public transit start driving themselves, um, absolutely catastrophic in terms of congestion, uh, be, being way worse than it ever was before COVID. Uh, I think that's why, though, it's you know cities are making these investments in, into making micromobility more accessible and, and safer yeah. with with these dedicated lanes because we're, we can't just solve the problem with cars. Um, and and there's you know there's a two way street here in, in the sense that. Uh, If if you take space away from cars, you're, you are going to make congestion worse to some point. uh, But you actually have to, I think, to change behavior, people need to feel that uh, a bike or scooter trip is going to be faster and more efficient than a car trip. Um, And and I think that's uh, obviously as safe. uh, But once you do that, you know, once people go scooter or bike, they don't really go back. Um, And so it's exciting to see some of these behavior shifts happening.
0: Yeah, but I guess the corollary to that is obviously uh, it's true. If you reduce, I guess, uh, if you reduce lanes for traffic, sure, you produce a brief inefficiency, I suppose. But obviously, adding lanes also eventually results in the same inefficiency as before you added the lane. So I think it's kind of a wash in a way, right? I mean...
1: Um, yeah, it's just that there's going to be a <clears throat> constituency well, a f- that, yeah. that that is going to be, hey, you know, traffic is already bad. like. Yep. Yeah. Why aren't why, why aren't we giving more space to cars? And you know, cities are going to require political courage to, to toe the line and and kind of drive this behavior shift towards these more sustainable modes. Um, because you yeah, know, there's there's more dollars uh, at stake in in terms of the built-in constituency for for promoting cars versus these new modes. So it's going to take political courage, uh, but I, I don't think there's ever been uh, a better opportunity to, to drive this behavior shift, you know, the classic never let a crisis go to waste. Um, and, and, you know, COVID (laughs) made Right. Well, so that's, that's
0: kind of my point. Yeah, that's my point actually is COVID exactly. So, so looking for example, in Oakland, didn't they shut down like 75 miles worth of road? And even before COVID, uh, Market Street and SF finally got shut down to, well, kind of shut down, I suppose, to, to at least most vehicle traffic, um, my, my, the thing that I'm wondering is, is, you know, and it's not just Oakland, 75 miles of road, but we saw this happen in, I guess it was um, Milan and Rome, and I think, you know, elsewhere throughout the world. Uh, I, I wonder, I hope these changes end up being permanent, right? Because that's kind of the concern. You've got this great kind of testing ground now with all this kind of disused road space, well, disused for vehicles anyway, road space. And then, so, yeah, start testing whether it's scooters or indeed even delivery robots or full autonomous vehicles of any sort um but I guess the question is, well, we start to realize that, oh, this is actually pretty neat, this actually kind of works, even here in the town that we live in uh here in Marin county there there's talks now if if you know the area at all, uh you know tiburon they they talk about uh closing down their little main street to uh closing it down to you know shutting off cars entirely, just making it open for pedestrians and outdoor cafes. And I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, like so many European cities have done, or towns have done forever. <laughs> I mean, my, my yeah. hope is that this trial phase ends up kind of sticking. People realize it works.
1: Well, well, the nice thing is infrastructure has a incumbency bias. So it's really hard to change it. But once it's changed, it's actually really hard to change it back. Mm, uh, and, and so so I think that's you know what has otherwise kind of bedeviled uh, uh, advocates of, of making these changes um you know again we we have this crisis opportunity where where you know an aggregate yeah some some thousands of miles have been reallocated and um, it, it's going to be tough to unwind that uh and and you have to make a new set of arguments of why you should give it back to cars and and there's also a safety aspect to this uh, you know the the vision zero advocates they've been pushing for for the, these types of changes as as a solution for a long time and and I do think we'll see a reduction in in fatalities, pedestrian fatalities, cycling fatalities uh as a result of these changes and I think that becomes um an even stronger uh set of arguments to to keep keep these positive changes in place.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do you think about sort of a hybrid solution where more and more roads start to open again open up again to cars, but uh you do set aside some dedicated lanes, or even indeed some entire dedicated roads just for, well, in this case, scooters or even for, well, autonomous vehicles as well. Uh, Again, the analogy I've often used is that in a sense, uh, at least with respect to autonomous cars, these are effectively sort of trains, virtual trains, right? And you look at certain of the great cities in the world where where this works so well. I mean, one that comes to mind is um, in Zurich, there's a main street there called Bahnhofstrasse. It's basically... Uh, it's essentially a tra- like a street tram road and pedestrians. Some cars can drive on it, but basically it's not that common, right? And that works really, really well. Um, that would make sense here though, right? Just to have some dedicated areas just for the scooters?
1: Yeah. I, I think the the easiest way to implement these policies is to take two lanes of road and turn it mm-hmm. into a one-way street and, and reallocate yeah. one of those lanes you know, in some cases, yeah you know I mean my, my take on autonomous vehicles and when I say autonomous vehicle that's you know anything that that's weighs more than a uh, thousand pounds so, so not really mm-hmm. uh, put it, putting scooters and, and the right, no, robots mm-hmm. in that category. Um, but I'm, I'm very bearish in terms of the, the market readiness of autonomous vehicles that have to interact with human drivers. But if you have completely dedicated lanes, yeah, don't don't you know, let start, them interact. You know, exactly. Like you said, it's like a train. Uh, yeah. That's that's the way we start being able yeah. to, to, to take advantage of those technologies in our cities. Um, you know, and, and I think you know, the the analogy of, of kind of bus rapid transit um, and, and bringing automation into those types of roadways, um, I feel like that those are the the productive paths to to take these conversations. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, and and I think that, you know, there's downsides to completely getting rid of cars in terms of, you know, some things that you try to get delivered uh, if there's no car access to, to a certain house, even from one side of the street, uh, it creates challenges. Right. And so I I don't think you want to reduce the livability of cities. uh, And and so, yeah, I, I don't think the right solution for every street is to completely shut it down to cars. Uh, but, but having wide, you know, wide berths for, for pedestrians, for, for scooters, for bikes, um, and, uh, you know, preserving car space, but, but not necessarily, uh, making it as efficient as it was before. Uh, I think that that's where you start seeing some really Mm -hmm. easy to implement solutions.
0: Have you, have you seen what they've done in DC in the last couple of years?
1: what specific like with
0: respect to with respect to lanes they have done a really cuz i was there a year ago and i was just super impressed they they've done a really great job building out a bunch of dedicated uh bike lanes and when i say dedicated i don't just mean like oh here's a green portion of the side of the road and that's it i mean like they've used they they've shifted the the uh, the parallel parking spots away from the curb to effectively create a buffer between the moving vehicle traffic and the bike yeah. lane, which is now up against the curb, that is just—I mean, I've seen it elsewhere before outside of the U.S. I had never seen it in the U.S. until in D.C. a year ago, and I just thought, "Wow, this is so cool! This, this is great!" Like, why is SF not doing this yet? You know? Um, well, actually, that- I actually think
1: they have started so on Howard Street in San Francisco. So, <laughs> you know, Mayor London Bree has actually been fantastic in terms of building out bike lanes, uh, but yeah, it, there are uh, effectively using the, uh, the the parallel parking lane as a buffer for the uh for the bike lane is oh they
0: are doing this oh, I didn't know they were doing that yet. Okay, cool. Yeah so they um, they've just
1: started, I think it was in the last year. Um okay. but uh but yeah it's it's it it's one of those duh uh yeah. <laughs> when you see it you're like why why did we ever do it a different way? Uh um, yeah totally but uh but yeah I mean I, I think it's it's important to remember, you know, you go back five years ago the the cyclist community was a fairly in many cities, it was a niche. It wasn't, there, there wasn't kind of this mass uh, desire to, to see biking be, be prevalent. Um, mm. and, and I think electrification is actually um, and, and having a lot of these shared, uh, shared products, like shared scooters, shared bikes, it's it's helped expand the constituency of folks that, that care about bike lanes. Um, not, not just people who, who are, you know, have very fancy bikes or, 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 you know, into cycling as as a community, but but people who just use it as as a very effective mode of transportation, and 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 so you know I, I think I have a hard time imagining all of this progress on the infrastructure side happening if these shared operators hadn't scaled the way the way they had and introduced so many people to biking to to scooters that that otherwise would have only really You know, thought about biking as a recreational activity, you know, you you drive to a park on the weekend specifically to bike as opposed to a, a mode of transportation.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're right, though. It does have to be a really proactive intent to make this reality happen, right? So I read a thing recently that actually really surprised me. I didn't know this. You, you probably know this already. But it turns out that Amsterdam, which I guess is like the you know, like the city for promoting bicycle riding, uh, and I've always assumed it's just kind of been that way forever. It turns out that actually after World War II, is was really decidedly not such a pro-bike friendly city. And it's kind of only changed after folks realized, hey, this isn't really working. And so there was a very, very, you know, proactive effort to make it be the bike friendly city that it is today, for instance. Um, it, it, and I guess I say that with the, it, the, the point being, it's a bit surprising that it that it isn't such an intuitive thing, despite the fact that, as you say, once you get there, people are like, oh, this is pretty awesome. Why would I ever go back from this?
1: Well, I think part of the, the structural challenge is in the U S and even in large parts of Europe, owning a car and, and using a car in a city or a suburb is heavily subsidized by the government. So mm, that's you
0: know, true.
1: Yeah. So, so you, and, um, and, and there's no, you know, the, the amount of subsidy per, per cars is way greater than than subsidy per bike or or per, per pedestrian. Um mm-hmm. and the, you know, to me, the, the best idea I've, I've come across this is this great urban planning book called Order Without Design, uh, and it's really charging users of road space based off of the amount of space they're consuming um, yep. and mm-hmm. what mode they're using and, and, and kind of the, the negative externalities of that. So, you know, you have this idea of congestion pricing, which is to charge people uh, yep. to enter uh, a, a certain area during a certain time. But this almost takes it to the next level, which is really think of anytime you're you're on a public roadway, you're effectively renting that space, uh, and you have different rental rates depending on the, the mode of transportation, uh, and and that's how you're if you adopt that type of policy. Now that we have you know all, all the smartphone technology, we actually have the the ability to administer and, and handle the accounting of something like that seamlessly, um, and and it feels like that's how we. Put ourselves on on a path where you could easily see how autonomous vehicles slot into this model as well. Uh, but but that feels like we we can correct some of the misallocation of subsidy uh, and really encourage consumers to u- use the uh, the modes that that have the least rental costs. Because when you're when you're going forty miles per hour in a two thousand pound vehicle, it's not just the space you're taking up; it's the space ahead of you and in front of you that needs to be. Yours, so so that nobody crashes into you, right? So so the faster mm-hmm. you're going, and the larger the vehicle, uh, the more space you need in between those vehicles. Um, that's where autonomous vehicles have an advantage because you you know if, if they're all if it's a dedicated lane, uh, you, you don't need to work in human reaction time. Uh, but but otherwise, you know I, I think of it through the lens of real estate and geometry. Uh, cars just take up a huge amount of space on the roadway when they're going 30 miles per hour. Um, and uh, we, we need a right size for that with with smart policies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Hey, that book you mentioned was Order Without Design, you said, right? Yep. Alan Bertrand? Okay, Bertrand. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's funny. No, just the other uh, day, I
0: learned of another book that I've got to read called The Power Broker by Robert Caro. Does that ring a bell?
1: Yeah. The uh, so so I mean the guy who basically made modern New York. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Embarrassingly, I only just learned about this, so I guess now I've got two books to read on my list uh i guess the latter of which is rather large
1: (laughs) yeah Um, order without design you you might get through a a little bit faster it's uh... i think i'll start with that one
0: (laughs) cool cool um i keep wanting to come back to discuss your actual technology and indeed kind of uh the recent i guess the recent news I've read about your partnership with uh, i guess it's go x scooters, but what you said made me think of yet another tangent i wanted to ask you you mentioned briefly uh about occupancy and this and that um i i've been I'm curious what you think uh the idea of an autonomous vehicle future and I'm going to come right back to scooters in a moment uh really kind of presupposes a shared future right um the idea being that you've got a bunch of empty pod cars buzzing about well, this is obviously gonna make traffic a lot worse uh because of course um is the solution as simple uh, i mean besides the fact that it also kind of presupposes moving away from any sort of car ownership at a private level uh at least. You know, uh, does it also suggest that you're going to have to have some sort of a, for lack of a better word, a tax, like an occupancy tax, right? So uh, obviously, if it's an empty car, it's going to be taxed really heavily. If it's full, it's going to be a lot cheaper. Is that the only way to kind of make this happen?
1: I mean, the way I think of autonomous cars is we actually already have the business model for it in place, which is the ride hail business model. Uh, And you kind of had UberX and, and UberPool. Um, and so I don't think you necessarily need to make it so, so every autonomous vehicle has to be an Uber pool, but the customer that, that's using the UberX vehicle, there's just a higher tax rate uh, right. mm-hmm. for an autonomous UberX versus an autonomous Uber pool. And that's how you, you kind of use that, that type of taxation uh, to, to, to manage congestion. Um but but I also you know p- p- one of the reasons I'm somewhat uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a while before we have uh, scaled autonomous vehicles for for passengers is because it's, it's the the convenience of that business model is already here. You know, you, you press a button, a car comes to you. Uh, it's it's gonna be a long time before it's going to be significantly cheaper for that car to be autonomous and not have a driver uh versus uh um versus you know yeah versus what we have today i mean i, I was chatting with some folks at uber atg and you know they, they were saying some of the internal estimates uh of when a uh, autonomous car will both be cheaper and safer than than a human driver is 2037 um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think the, you know, in, in many ways, Rideshare uh, took the sales out of the the need for autonomous vehicles because the magical customer experience already exists today. And, um, you know, a big part of why we're excited about Tortoise is, is we're trying to bring that same magical experience of press a button. A light electric vehicle comes to you that, that you can drive yourself like a scooter or e-bike. Uh, that doesn't yet exist, and we can use accessible technologies like remote teleoperations uh, that that don't require R and D breakthroughs to to start making that magic happen for writers.
0: Yeah. All right. Cool. So let's let's indeed talk more than about exactly what you guys are doing, and kind of how it works. I mean, I've got this looping GIF, and yes, I still say GIF. Um, <laughs> this looping GIF in front of my face of, yeah, I think I'm just going to go with a swarm of scooters uh, on this article over at the, what is this anyway? CNET? Yeah. CNET's roadshow from a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, so just to be clear then, these are indeed remotely operated, at least for the time being, presumably for testing, or is that kind of the, uh, yes. I mean, I work-
1: no, 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 not just for testing. I mean, we, we think that uh, for the next 12 to 18 months and whenever we first enter our market to, to, Div, you know, make sure the community understands what's happening. It's really valuable that that people understand that there's always direct human accountability and human hmm. control of a scooter that that's going by you at a low speed with nobody on it. Um, hmm. And and once we've entered a market, uh, then we can start over time using more and more autonomy for for parts of a repositioning. But but. When I think about crossing an intersection, when I think about interacting with pedestrians, even five years from now, I think we're going to be using remote drivers for for that part of a repositioning and and so our mm-hmm. view is uh, getting getting something from A to B uh, along a public right- of way uh, that that includes sidewalk and crosswalk and, and road shoulder it's always going to be a hybrid approach're There's certainly parts of that trip. You're going to be able to use autonomy software on. Uh, but, but unless you're, you're adding you know, $20,000 in electronics and compute to uh, a $500 scooter, you're not going to be able to convince uh, a city official that it can handle all of the edge cases of what may happen crossing an intersection. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, b- both from a peace of mind point of view, uh, a, a regulatory acceleration point of view, uh, we we think it's it's really important to have these technologies be hybrid uh, and not to uh, make the the goalposts uh, L five autonomy for for a scooter that's being repositioned.
0: Mm-hmm. So is the so just to be clear, is the technology on the scooters right now today capable of doing that sort of autonomy? And just it's not used, or uh, it, yeah, like, it is. Like, where, so what's it, the tech right now?
1: Yeah, so right now we can handle about twenty five percent of a typical trip autonomously now we don't we don't use that and our goal when we deploy isn't to increase that percentage currently like we we don't view our our deployments as you know we're not trying to learn and and kind of use use our first cities as as lab rats uh we're trying to provide a valuable service Um, Mm and the you know we think it's again, our, our first priority is making the service incredibly reliable with teleoperations, uh, having people accept it and see the value of it. And then over time we, we can increase the autonomy percentage. One of the reasons we, we are able to take that approach is, is we've built a distributed uh, teleoperations system out the gate. So, so we're able <laughs> that, to... That was my next question pre- actually. Yeah. So we, we have a teleoperations center in, in Mexico uh, the way we've set up our teleoperations infrastructure, anybody anywhere in the world can be a teleoperator. So whether they'd be in India or Bangladesh, um, and we've made it so that the interface uh, for the teleoperator, the, the hardware they need is, is very minimal. So you, you could do it on a basic laptop with a decent internet connection uh, and that's it. Um, and, and so being able to, uh, create really good earning opportunities for, for, for people in lower labor cost markets, uh, we're, we're already able to move a scooter across a, a US or European city uh, way more cost effectively than the next best alternative. And so we, we don't need to artificially uh, rush the, the adoption of autonomy to start creating re- really powerful uh, cost efficiencies for our customers.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that is exactly what I wanted to ask. So the idea is that you'd eventually, or I guess currently, it sounds like, effectively open this up. So instead of a bunch of drivers who kind of decide to drive for Uber or Lyft, now you've got a bunch of folks who can, remotely from the comfort of their home, effectively take over and remote operate these
1: these scooters. Right. So anybody can so just like kind of a, jump like in like and a, do that. Like a video game where you make money. Uh, yeah,
0: that's where I was going with this.
1: The uh, and and that's that's again why why our strategy is to be horizontal, right? So we're mm-hmm. we're currently doing this for scooters. We're excited to be coming out with our own uh, delivery cart that that's purpose built for for grocery, alcohol, mm-hmm. retail uh, orders that that with COVID have now really you know just seen a dramatic increase in, in people needing uh, last mile fulfillment, and, and from a teleoperator point of view. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're driving a scooter, or a delivery cart, or a security bot, or a cleaning bot, you're following a route and you're getting it to its destination. And, and the the more teleoperators we have, uh, the higher their utilization, the more efficient our system is. And so one way I describe Tortoise is we're, we're an AWS for moving things in the real world, mm-hmm. crossed with a Uber for teleoperations. Uh, where we're trying to aggregate the, the most demand for teleoperations, and when we say teleoperations in our in our context, the, the one constraint is always low speed. Um, so yep. we're and, and generally light mass vehicles. Uh, so we're we're you know, there's companies like Phantom Auto that that are doing teleoperations for self driving cars. Uh, a, few, a few other companies in that space. Uh, we're we're not touching that because yep. you need way more than a basic laptop for that, that teleoperator. But if you're constraining yourself to low speed and then a light mass vehicle, uh, that that's where you, you can have this this very uh, minimal uh, hardware requirement for the teleoperator.
0: And and since you said you're doing kind of both scooters and then eventually delivery bots, droids, whatever we call them, I mean uh, am I correct in assuming then that whatever kit you've developed for these can be easily effectively what retrofitted for any other sort of device and that form factor, or potentially you've now got this partnership, I guess, with GoX. I'm assuming this is a thing that can work with just about anybody else. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. And, and we're, you know, retrofitting is what I always called a short-term chicken egg cracker. Uh, Our, you know, our, our core partnership approach on, on the, on the manufacturing and hardware side is to work with OEMs like Segway, uh, you know, like, like, you know, other leading players in, in micromobility so, so they can integrate our reference design. Because all the, the electronics, the reason it's $100 is it's all commodity components. Uh, so we're, we're, we're not trying to, uh, our business model is to not make money off of hardware. It's to empower uh, as many OEMs as possible to build light electric vehicles and robots that come out of the factory compatible with our repositioning service. Um, and so, um, so, yeah, we're, we're but, but yeah, the, the core reference design, you know, we're using the exact same cameras uh, that went into the, uh, the scooter we deployed with GoX uh, in the delivery cart, we're using the exact same processor, uh, all, all the exact same firmware effectively. So the, the repositioning works identically.
0: Mm -hmm. So, okay. So can we talk a little more about the tech itself then? I mean, what can you share about that? It sounds like it is basically just, I mean, I'm not hearing any talk about any sort of super high-end stuff like LiDAR, Sonar, Radar, obviously, but I mean, it's all just camera-based, I guess.
1: Yeah. So two cameras, uh, a, you know, laughably uh, modest processor akin to (laughs) what you would see on a, you know, Raspberry Pi grade, if you will. Uh, Wow which you can use uh w- with our system um we, we do include uh, a very cheap radar uh that is purely for detecting if, if something jumps right in front of you just to mm-hmm. default stop um, right. and, that's, yes. and that's also you know partially for future proofing for when we do want to use autonomy that's not really as relevant in the the purely teleoperated model um and then yeah i mean the in the scooter space, it's scooters already come with IoT components, you know, data card, uh, antenna, uh, GPS that, uh, that 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 we need uh, for what we do. So, so kind of the the IoT module of a scooter plus two cameras plus a processor, and then you know, in the scooter case, you, you want to add a motor for for remote steering, uh, but all totaled, we're, we're not talking about more than one hundred dollars in electronics. Uh, to to make oh. this possible. Wow, oh. well,
0: that's pretty cool. Huh. And so the you know,
1: a lot of the you know the the craft and the uh, the the IP is around video compression, uh, so so that you're you know managing latency effectively. Um, you know, eventually that becomes a cost uh, factor because you know the three variable costs for us are going to be teleoperator labor, the mobile data costs, and the insurance costs. Um, so we, we want to be efficient on that front and, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, um, that we're, we're not trying to, um, kind of win accolades in terms of breakthrough R and D work. Our whole approach is technology like this has been working for over a decade inside our homes. It's the Roomba, uh, and, uh, we're, we're, we're now just, you know upscaling at one, one level, but, uh, th- this is a lot more similar to a, a Roomba than it is to a self-driving car. Yeah,
0: yeah that's a good analogy. I, I, I can see that. Okay, cool. And I've really got to stop staring at this looping video or it's never going to leave my brain, but I'm noticing there appears to be some sort of training wheels sort of things at the back of these. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So that's for the, so, so several of the manufacturers in the scooter space we're working with are actually going to be coming out with three wheel scooters. Where mm-hmm. you don't need the retractable training wheels mm-hmm. uh, for a two-wheel scooter, uh, what what we do is instead of having the traditional kickstand on one side, we just replace mm-hmm. that with retractable training yeah. wheels. That when uh, um, you know, and, and they actually end up lifting the, the 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 back main wheel, so so it's on three wheels when it's parked or we're repositioning mm-hmm. it. And so that provides us with a balance. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. it's very unsophisticated. You that's know, about $10 in parts uh, hey, works. those training <laughs> wheels. Uh, and again, for a rider, they're already used to the beginning and end of every trip uh, raising and then lowering the kickstand. And they're just doing that with their foot for with these training yeah, wheels sure. as opposed to with, uh, with the kickstand.
0: Um, how about connectivity? Uh, what I'm assuming that if there is, if it is in a remote drive mode, as it sounds like it is the vast majority of the time, I'm assuming if there's a loss of connectivity, then the thing just comes to a stop.
1: Exactly, but but one of the things we do, you know, our only really pre work be, before deploying in an area is mapping it for connectivity strength, um, and so sure. when we then right. generate routes for our teleoperators... If there are any dead zones, we'll avoid routing into them. Um, And we are also, you know, one of the the nice things, especially in the scooter space is the IOT is running when riders are on the scooter as well. And so we're able to constantly be updating our, uh, effectively our map of where you might have dead zones. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, one of our core accumulating advantages is on the routing side um, and and kind of generating better and better efficiency there, um, and, and that's really where we we focus our. You know, if there's an ML aspect to what we do, it's it's more so on the routing than on the uh, the, the autonomy software itself, because because our view is, you know, we are developing our own autonomy software, but but ultimately, what determines the percentage of autonomy relative to teleoperations is more how good you are at routing. Uh, around areas where you're going to have to fall back to teleoperations versus anything else. Uh, and, and so so the routing ends up becoming v- very, very valuable.
0: Yeah, and this actually reminds me. Uh, so two days ago, I had a pretty awesome chat with James Wu over from uh, deepmap.ai. And um, it just got me thinking, uh, could you guys not theoretically also effectively kit these things out with the ability to accumulate all sorts of HD mapping data of your own also, which can be used either for yourselves or indeed effectively licensed to others, whether it's for autonomous vehicles generally or anything else besides. I mean, it seems to me like if you're going to have all these scooters everywhere inside of cities, that's the, that offers a lot of potential for getting a ton of mapping data too.
1: Yeah. We're, we're taking a, a very disciplined approach to not monetizing the data uh, besides just making our service better and better, because we're when you put cameras on scooters, there's inherently privacy concerns that that a city might have, and and I think the right, there's uh, no
0: expectation and, of privacy in public streets generally.
1: Yeah, but it, it's it's just um, we're, we we think it's important to position ourselves as like above reproach when it comes to even you know even close to being on a gray area there. Uh, Because, I think cities, if they start perceiving uh, our our vehicles as surveillance cameras, or you know, I I think there's a lot of um, a lot of fears and and doubts that might be raised if we're seen as a as a data reseller. And so we're we're just you know, who knows what you know down the road other business models we might consider. Uh, But but for the time being, we're really focused on just purely monetizing. The repositioning as a service. We think of mm-hmm. us as a moving company. Uh, you, you pay us per minute or per mile, um, yeah. and it's as simple as that. And and I think the you know w- one of the big challenges of uh, bringing automation and autonomy to public rights of way is preserving and building trust with with the regulators and, and public officials. And yeah, I think true. one of the things that erodes that trust is is when companies are a little too cute about all the potential ways they, they might monetize data uh, and effectively exclude cities fr- from that. Um, we're, we're again, we're just focused on, on repositioning. Uh, we see that as a, as a massive mm-hmm. opportunity. Um, and if we just, you know, I think startup, many startups have uh, made the mistake of trying to bite off t- more than they can chew. And, and I think, for us, we're, we just want to get really good at uh, at reliably repositioning things at low speeds.
0: Totally. And of course, there's a thing to be said about being super focused, uh, because of course. Um, but it also does remind me, I know that um, here Technologies actually works with cities insofar as sharing the data, kind of brokering the data back to cities insofar as assisting with road maintenance, for instance, right? So instead of sending sur- you know human survey crews all over cities kind of at random to find bits of road that need repair, now all the data they're getting from... The vehicle's, you know, whether it's suspension data or even camera data or whatever, this now can be sold to cities so they can just zero in on whatever needs to be fixed. Talk about getting on a city's good side with respect to data accumulation. I think that's probably a pretty good approach. Um, but yeah, I, to- I totally hear you. It makes sense to... Uh,
1: yeah, and, I, I, our view, and we've received requests like that and our view is actually, if to the extent to which we'll be sharing those types of insights, we'll do it at mm-hmm. no charge. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know... You know, we see that as the, as the price of being allowed to operate in a city right. is, you know, create value for the community. Um, but but in terms of the the commercial focus, you know, you know prioritize yeah. the the repositioning.
0: Yeah, and with your with respect to your point about uh, security or privacy generally, it reminded me. And I just googled it to be sure. I remember I was in Germany back in October, and um, I learned that Sentry Mode on Teslas are indeed illegal. Uh In Germany, hmm. for precisely wow. that issue, you simply cannot have kind of ongoing video recording. Um, so so yeah, I hear you huh, all right um, all right, so let's see with respect to the so with respect to connectivity generally, I'm curious, I know that's become a bit of a cliched question. Do you have any opinion either way on the importance or the necessity, i suppose, of 5 g deployment generally? Because like, I feel like there's kind of two schools of thought. Some folks say, yeah, you really need a properly deployed 5G network to sort of facilitate uh, every aspect of an autonomous future, including and especially, of course, vehicle-to-X communications generally. Certainly, it's going to help foretell an operation, if only by virtue of, I guess, almost zero latency. At least, I guess that's the promise, right? Um, do you have any strong opinion either way on its importance or significance?
1: Well, it's... I think it's very important for uh supporting teleoperations for a large mass vehicle that's going forty miles per hour or even twenty miles per hour. Um yeah. the you know the the reason we we built tortoise is we're not dependent on infrastructure scaling. And, and I think that the problem with 5G is not the technology. it's a real question of like when will it actually be you know, per, as pervasive as 4G is today. Well, um, oh, right, because there's a huge
0: range issue too, right? So you're going to need a lot more of these
1: things. Yeah, so, so if, you're, if your service is dependent on 5G, then you're not right. going to have a very reliable service for, for a very long time. <laughs> True. Uh, so, so I think that's a, uh, um, and yeah, I mean, the the reason we're, we're, we're so excited about the low-speed light mass opportunity is if you think about, you know, the latency we're dealing with, so say, hundred milliseconds of latency uh, if, if you're only going five. Hey, that'll miles. get you on
0: quake, man. That'll get you on quake or doom or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, it won't, uh, you know, you're talking about going a matter of inches. Uh, if, if it's, if you're going five miles per hour, if you're going 60 miles per hour, yeah. you're going to go like 10 feet. Um yeah. so, yeah. so I, th- I think that's where we we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, we feel very comfortable uh, at the low speed, uh, managing the latency the way we are. But if we were trying to go faster, that would absolutely start creating safety issues. Yeah, no, no, and, for sure. That makes sense. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the way we think about 5G is it will allow us to go faster uh, in certain use cases. But if you're going on the sidewalk, you're going to start freaking out pedestrians if you're going a lot faster
0: than
1: <laughs> five miles per hour anyway. So there's a natural, yeah, I think. More on the. I get more freaked
0: way. out just by bicyclists blowing past with two inches to spare.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so I, I think that's uh, um, yeah that, that that's where this kind of all intersects with uh, uh, with what we're doing at Tortoise, but but I think it's, mm-hmm. it's risky for any startup to be building their their service assuming uh, you're going to have five G because it's it's you'll have it in certain parts of cities in certain cities, uh, but transportation doesn't work that well if you if you can't get everywhere
0: never mind the fact that you've got a bunch of folks convinced that 5g caused covid but never mind
1: <laughs> yeah uh, oh geez. there uh, will always be conspiracy theories and the, the new pressure of the technology the uh the more ripe it, it is for that
0: <laughs> exactly so with respect for your time i guess i have two ish questions um I mean, you mentioned pedestrians on sidewalks, so I've got to ask the silly, totally stupid question, but it's kind of worth asking, honestly. I mean, come on, people are going to knock these things over. They they are. I mean, people knock cows over, unfortunately. They're going to knock over autonomous scooters. What's the practical solution for this?
1: Yeah, so the... And this is, again, where having a a uh, Uh, teleoperator-based solution is helpful because one of the things, one of the other components that that is part of the... uh, uh, that a hundred dollars is a speaker uh and so the teleoperator oh. actually has uh, can- at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's it 's not i mean they have pre recorded voice commands that they can out of their interface um oh. you know so so if somebody 's intentionally getting in the way of the scooter um you know they 'll hear you know hi i'm i 'm trying to get to somebody who who requested a ride can I help you um so so there 's a um th- there 's a series of Uh, escalating voice commands that you can deploy and what that also does is it reminds the person that might be doing the uh, illegal or annoying thing that while you know we're not in the business of of sharing the video feed with with public authorities they are at some level being recorded and it's not you know in in the scooter share 1.0 world when when you throw a, a scooter into the river there's really no chance of you getting in trouble <laughs> doing that uh but but there's a deterrence factor that that with these things having cameras on them uh I, th- I think will will help us mitigate some of those issues the you know the the other aspect to um uh, this is avoiding having scooters in areas where they're more most likely to be vandalized, so you know when it's last call in the part of town where there's bars move all the scooters away from that area. Like you're, you're just asking for trouble by having the scooters there in the first place. The reason the operators can't do that now is it's just really expensive to have people driving around in trucks and vans uh, to, to, to move them to safer locations. Uh, so, so I think the combination of strategically rebalancing uh, out of areas where you're, you're more likely to, to, to have vandalism uh, and then using the voice commands and, and the inherent deterrence that, that comes from that uh, also works in your favor.
0: You know, this totally just gave me an idea. Uh, I worked with a guy once at a previous startup who whose brother had developed down in uh, SLO, San Luis Obispo. Um, actually, it's worth asking. Do you know the town? Have you been there before? Uh,
1: I, I drive frequently between uh, uh, Bay Area and Southern California. So I've driven yeah. through it, but I haven't spent much time okay. there.
0: Okay. Well, the point being that it's just geographically, it's worth trying to picture in your head. It's a pretty small, very dense little walkable kind of village of a town. Right. And this guy actually developed probably, I don't know, it's 10 years ago or so. Um, I don't know really how to call it, but it's basically like one of those big uh, pedal bike things that can carry 10 or 12, 15 people, you know, and it was effectively like a post party sort of like a, uber bicycle thing for people who are too drunk to to drive or even get their own uber for that matter (laughs) actually this is probably before even uber got deployed there but it just occurred to me i mean you mentioned not having these scooters around you know last call in bar areas but on the flip side gosh i mean theoretically regulations permitting it at some point imagine uh, you could do the same with remotely operated uh yeah obviously uh, the you know transport for folks uh, safely out of these bar zones too and if it's not a scooter perhaps less potential for obvious easy vandalism.
1: Yeah. I mean, our, the, in terms of like our, our technology doesn't really make sense when there's a rider on the vehicle because nobody wants to go five miles per hour. Right. So we're, you know, well, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're, uh, um, yeah, we're, we're, and if if in the middle of a repositioning, somebody hops on the scooter, we would just stop and, and the voice commands. But, uh, but yeah, we're, 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 we're specifically, uh, or, or in the business of of getting your transportation to you, but not moving people.
0: Yeah, no, of course that makes sense. And I would imagine there's there's got to be at least some non-trivial environmental impact too to to, to not requiring folks to like a, an actual. Va- I remember I was in D.C. for instance, and I would see, and it's weirdly I, I'd never seen them anywhere else besides there. But I was just constantly seeing these these scooter like pickup vans with a team of two or three folks pick up scooters, load them on the vans, and shuttle them around. I'm sure there's got to be some pretty interesting metrics on how uh, much of a benefit there would be to oh, eliminating yeah, the no, need no, to do yeah, that. right? Yeah.
1: yeah I mean, a, a lot of the benefit of shared scooters today is getting undone by then having to pay yeah. for, for people yeah. driving around and gas guzzling trucks. and vans. Exactly. The The, I mean, the other irony is very often to get the scooters, those trucks and vans end up park, you know, temporarily parking in a way where they're blocking the bike lane. So they're, yeah. You know, oh yeah. They end up creating a, a hazard. And so yeah. so yeah. There's a, there's a lot of efficiency uh, on on the recharging side, um, but but ultimately, <clears throat> you know, and, and we see our kind of as I, I stated at the outset, the three value props are the demand side, getting the right scooter uh, to the right rider at the right time, the recharging savings, uh, and and kind of the VMT impact, and then the clutter impact. Uh, and, and depending on the market and the operator, diff, different, uh, different value props will matter more. Uh, but the one that, that we think is the most enduring is on the demand side, because eventually, you know, I'm optimistic that batteries are getting better and better. And in five years, you could very well have a, a battery that will last you a week. Um, and so that, that, that problem might start solving itself. Whereas the underutilization problem, that, that's eternal. Uh, the way I like to explain shared scooters today is imagine if you're running the world's least efficient taxi service, what you would probably do is make it so your taxi drivers can only wait at the location of their last drop-off to get their next pickup. And mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that's effectively what, what we have today with shared scooters and bikes. And so uh, hu- huge room for improvement. Uh, by, by, by allowing that real-time rebalancing.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think this is a seriously, obviously awesomely much-needed uh, solution to a thing. So I, for one, welcome the day we see these things uh, buzzing about on their own. Uh, what, what, Actually, yeah, What, what uh, I guess to close it out, actually, feel free to share uh, what, what are your kind of deployment plans going forward, either with respect to, I guess, certain cities, uh, geographies generally, um, Timeframes, partners with other scooter companies. Anything you feel like sharing?
1: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll avoid making headlines uh, today, but uh, we will. Our next market after suburban Atlanta is going to be San Jose, California. Uh, oh, cool. So, so, in in our uh, respective backyard here, and and then uh, we're yeah, I mean, in in the delivery cart space, there's actually ten states and uh, the District of Columbia already have existing uh, laws that, that allow the operation of delivery carts and robots on the sidewalk. Um, so, so a lot of latitude there. Uh, and we're, we're engaged with a lot of different communities uh, about that. But, uh, but the, we're seeing very strong receptiveness from from cities worldwide, including in Europe, uh, that all are plagued in, in the scooter space by the, the challenge of sidewalk clutter and obstruction. Uh, and so there's a very receptive audience to uh, to, to the solutions we're proposing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely a fan. So uh, very cool. Well, Dimitri, thanks very much. Uh, it's been awesome to finally sync up and chat about all this. I'm excited what you guys are doing. And uh, yeah, what can I say? I look forward to seeing these things on the road. Uh, pretty soon, I may have to head down to San Jose, it looks like, and uh, I look forward to check it out. So uh, thanks so much for happy.
1: having me on. Love the conversation. Always happy to come back.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Exactly. Yeah, feel free to circle back a couple months, catch up where you guys are at. Until then, take care. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: All right, well, that is a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful
1: rest of the week. I'll see you back here on Friday. Take care. Bye-bye.